TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Lots of ground to cover today on a global scale because uh, my first guest, the author of probably the largest selling travel book in recent history, or maybe in the history of publishing, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, Patricia Schultz. And then joining us, very interesting guy, uh, the food critic and editor-at-large for San Diego Magazine, Troy Johnson. First up. Patricia Schultz. She's the author of one of the most remarkable stories in, in travel publishing I've ever seen. Talk about a great concept book. It touched into, it touched deeply into people's desire um, to have some meaning to their bucket list, some way of gauging their own experiences in the world against a much larger opportunity. And when the book came out, it soared to the top of the best-selling charts. Still there, many different editions, not just a global edition, but a USA and Canada edition. Joining me now, the author and the instigator of that book, Patricia Schultz. Hello. Thank you, Peter, for having me. And this goes back a long time, this book, right? We're yeah, talking, what, 15 years? Yeah, I remember getting um, a call to come in with my publisher in 1995. And um, we talked about this idea of 100 drop-dead places. And then we met again a week later, and they had added a zero because they thought it looked better. <laughs> and they tweaked the title to be um, Before You Die. And then... And you know what? The Before You Die part is the key. Because everybody's walking around with their internal ticking clock going... What am I going to do? When am I going to do it? Can I do it? It's like, it's their own internal race, isn't it? It is. And it was the ultimate wake-up call. You know, we all know it that... Started, it started that concept of the bucket list. Yeah, it did. And that time is precious and do it now. Carpe diem, make it happen. And in all of these years, I've only had one person say to me, and she was quite annoyed that I had um, titled it as I did, that I put died on the cover. She really took it personally. Yeah, yeah, but, which said, probably, uh, let me guess who said, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> Am I supposed to die tomorrow? Yeah. And she was very annoyed, and I think she wanted me to change. Then I said, listen, it's a done deal. It's already out there, and you seem to be the only one taking issue. Amazing. Well, the thing is, it did get our attention. It did. There's it was meant to. It was meant to be just a little alarming. But back in the day in 2003, when it first came out, it wasn't at all an expression that was used. But it um, wasn't supposed to come out in 2003. No, it was supposed to have come out um, seven years prior to that. <laughs> so I signed the contract in 95. They gave me one year. They said, take two. And it was eight years later. In the meantime... 
September 11th happened. There was a moment, which in fact was a year or two, when tourism numbers plummeted because no one was moving, no one was traveling, and we lived with this notion that if I stay home, I'm safe. And it was the farthest thing from the truth because you and I live blocks from where the attacks happened in downtown Manhattan. Exactly. And of course, the concept of, of, of safety um, is very relative. Oh my gosh. And now more than ever, I oh, mean, more it than changes. Ever. Yeah, very much. So. And, you know, I'm one of those people that when you have a terrible attack at a nightclub in Paris or a shootout at a nightclub in Istanbul, uh, I go. Now, I'm not going because I'm a daredevil. I'm not going because I have thrill-seeking tendencies. It's because historically I've discovered that the best time to go or one of the best times to go to any destination is after they've had a natural disaster or a civil disturbance or an act of political terrorism because people are desperate to have you there. Yes. And, and, and happy to have you there. Yes, and their welcome is very genuine and heartfelt and i remember during seven uh september 11th immediately you know the aftermath when our mayor and the officials and the tourism people were actively you know pleading that people come and support and fill the broadway theaters and to come and you know to return to new york because new york was empty and isn't it ironic that now 16 years later or almost 16 years later with a new president uh the Unexpected, unintended consequence of the executive order, the so-called travel ban affecting seven different countries, has had a similar effect. Um, New York City tourism is down dramatically. Uh, global search online is down 17%. Global bookings, bookings down 7%. And that's an average. In some countries, it's down 13, 14, 15%. The fear factor's back. It, it's fear and it's also principle. I think a lot of the response I get on social media and my Facebook page, et cetera, from um, quote unquote fans or followers or friends um, who live elsewhere have no desire to come to a country that they now perceive as being unwelcoming. And they said that, you know, you're asking us to go and spend our dollars elsewhere or our, or our pounds or our sterlings or our money elsewhere. And, you know, they'll come back in four years, they tell me. Well, they talk about, and they've been able to sort of quantify it, you know, a lost decade between 2001 and 2011 where America was perceived during those period, during that decade as being unwelcoming, inhospitable, closed. The visa wait times were like 180 days. Um, and people just literally, they weren't just making a statement. They were giving up. Uh, that's not just leisure travelers. That's business yes, travelers. Yes, yeah. Within a week of January 27th, when President Trump issued the first executive order, business travel bookings alone dropped $185 million. In the first... I think three days following that order, airline stocks lost $4.9 billion in market value. I mean, it was, it was a, an immediate reaction because people were remembering, I think, what happened at, after 9-11, and here we go again. I know, and it's a real shame, and I'm glad you're putting those numbers out there because I, who am very sensitive and always on the lookout, I don't see those numbers unless you read the trade publications. Right. Go, and yet there's this sense that jobs are being created and it's a good thing for the country and yada, yada, yada. But Well, in it's principle, very- in principle, travel does create jobs. In fact, it's one out of every 10 jobs. It's nearly 11% of global GDP. It's staggeringly strong when it is strong. Mm-hmm. But now, you know what they're calling it now? The Trump slump. Oh, yeah, I know. How sad. I know. And, and, and so avoidable. 
Um, a great time to travel, by the way, if you're an American with a valid passport anywhere in the world, because there's global discounting going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an opportunity to go just about anywhere where that's in your book, just about. And then some. So where are you going? Oh, what's uh, next on what's next your on list? my list? I'll be uh, going to Berlin. Then I'm going to the Middle East. Then I'm going to the Gulf. Then I'm going to the Caribbean. Uh, then I'm going to New York for CBS. Um, you name it, I'm going. And that's all before next week? That's all in the next <laughs> three weeks. I, I, and I forgot to throw in uh, Bangkok for the World Travel and Tourism Council, uh, which is sort of like our G8 summit. Um, and, uh, and then also checking out a brand new cruise ship, the Silver Muse, which launches on April 3rd in Genoa. Oh, cool. So this is all happening. Yes, yeah. it is. So yeah. there are those of us, are, you know, veteran, intrepid travelers who can't be held back and will travel and travel a lot. But, but that I, doesn't mean, though, Patricia, that we're being silly or stupid or, or irresponsible. Uh, in fact, I let everybody know that, that my metric, right, uh, of where I want to go, or I should tell you where I don't want to go, is I won't go anywhere where I don't know who's in control. Right. So when I go to North Korea tomorrow, yes, I know who's in control. When I go to Iran, yes, I know who's in control. Uh, Northern Iraq, no problem. But now we're talking Syria, not going. Parts of Chechnya, parts of the Congo, probably not. Uh, and a couple of cities in the United States, probably, when you think about it. But now I've run out of places I wouldn't go. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm showing up you know, armed to the teeth and you know, I'm going to be Rambo here. It just means if you make intelligent choices based on on trusted source information, you can go just about anywhere. You can, and you should. And I think it's more important now, more than ever. And that old notion of um, traveling as an ambassador of goodwill, it sounds really hokey, doesn't it? Because it's something... But by the mere fact that you're traveling, you're an ambassador of goodwill. Yeah, but you do need to be on your best behavior. But I think that... Well, they... let's, wait, wait, let's talk about that. <laughs> let's get down to a definition of, of for, for American travelers of what usually drives me nuts about my fellow Americans. Number one, you know, the name of your book is A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It might be nice if Americans knew where they were because we tend to be geographically ignorant. That's number one. You know, I heard, hold that thought, I heard, and I've never looked into validating if it was fake news or not news or whatever, that over 30% of Americans in a certain age group, those who should know, I think 18 to 33, cannot find America on a world map. Have you ever heard that? No, but I'll do it a different way. They can't find Syracuse on the map, so how can they find Syria? And then there was the percentage of those who cannot find on a map of America, who cannot find their own state, or who cannot name the neighboring states. Oh, I believe that. Because, in fact, they've never left the confines of their own state. And the thing is this. I'm not trying to be elitist about this. I'm sort of frustrated by it, because my parents, and I'm going to presume your parents as well, came from a generation in which 82% of the adult population would die within 20 miles of where they were born. Now, that number, if you follow it, is down to about 62%. And even though it's dropped 20%, it's still 62%. And there are friends of mine, and I'm embarrassed to say this because I I get angry at them, who who will basically say to me, why would I want to leave Kansas? I have everything I want here. Mm -hmm. I'm like going, hello? (laughs) I'm not telling you to leave it permanently, but you might want to step over there. You might want to just open your eyes and maybe go there. 
right? Yeah, because the issue is not whether you leave America to travel internationally, but whether you leave your comfort little bubble to go, you know, just down the road and around the corner to stay within America, but at least to see this country because how magnificent, how huge, how jam-packed with possibilities. So you don't need to spend 10 hours on a plane and you don't need to spend a whole lot of money because for the number of Americans without passports, look what we have here. Well, let's just say this, and I think I'll be, uh, I won't be challenged on this statement. The comfort zone is highly overrated. <laughs> I just, just thought I'd mention that. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. We're going to take a quick break and back right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg and welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news we've been speaking with patricia schultz the author of an amazingly uh, robust and 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 resilient bestseller because it's 15 years later and you're still on the bestseller charts with a thousand places to see before you die, and to me, it's not really about ticking off a box. To me, it's not like saying, "Oh, I went there, I went there, I went there, I went there." There are guys that I know who will literally say, "I'm the most traveled person in the world," and really, what did you do? Well, I jumped off the boat and touched that island, therefore I was there. I mean, they literally will say this, and they just want to take it off the box and say, "Okay," because they're they're trying to get the Guinness folks on the right, on the phone. That's not traveling. Not at all. Not in my book, yeah. so to say. Yeah. And I've never even um, understood this idea of you know counting countries and is it okay to count you know India because I transferred, I connected in the Delhi airport. I was here for an hour and a half. Sure, right off a country as massive <laughs> and fascinating as India. A hub does not qualify. <laughs> a connecting flight, I'm sorry. There's also all kinds of criteria how long you need to stay in a country. And, and I think it's become too formulaic and too well, much Well, you know, of a business. You know about the Century Club? Yes. Okay, I'm a member. Okay, big deal. Okay, I'm, I could say, but hey. But it is a big deal. I guess it is, yeah. It is. Okay. Is it really? Yes. I mean, to see that many countries in just a one century lifetime. club means you've been to at least 100 countries. Yeah. yeah. And you were just talking about, you know, your your friend of a friend of a friend who lives in Kansas who's never left town. No. So, you know, there are people who, you know, hear 100 countries and to them it's nothing more than a pipe dream. So you have accomplished something remarkable, you know, a dream to most people. And if we go back about 60 years or maybe even 70 years, what we find is that the first Americans who really in the 20th century got a chance to travel were in World War II because we sent our guys overseas. And there were 17 and 18-year-old kids who, oh my God, there they were in Germany and Paris and and fighting in in Asia and the South Pacific. Uh, All my uncles, you know, my parents, that's where they were, you know. and that's what allowed the baby boomers to hear those stories and turn around. And then they took us, right? My first trip, I was 12 years old. I went with my mom and my dad and my sister in 19, okay, I'll tell you, 1962 on a Pan Am 707 to Orly Airport, um, my first trip to Europe. And I, re- I remember it literally the mo- in the most vivid way. And that's what started it. I was so excited on the plane, by the way, I threw up. (laughs) Um, I remember that too. Um, But it was an amazing trip because 
it was the first time I could actually relate to, to the world. Because uh, you can't just study it in a book. No. And along that line also is the whole um, experience of, um, you know, it's a parallel experience, but being a junior year abroad student. Yeah. That was what, for me, opened my mind. I mean, and it was an eye-opening um, experience to see that they didn't care much if we ever showed up for class because they and I came from Georgetown where you know if you didn't show up for class it was all over oh yeah but, but let they me give you my understood that it was the oh experience. sure I mean let's my favorite Mark Twain quote never let school interfere with your education yeah, I mean I true. live for that <laughs> how I got a diploma from any of the schools I went to is still uh, they have search and rescue teams trying to answer that question I mean but I don't regret it for a minute. No, and look what you've learned just through travel. Yeah. It is the ultimate education. And I always call it an, an, a classroom without walls because you always come back with so much knowledge and things that you don't even understand will stay with you for life. Some kind of life lesson, grand or subtle, it doesn't matter. You come back and you're a new person. And it's also this kind of win-win situation because you've gone to some crazy foreign, you know, far-flung place and experience how the time of your life but then you come home with a newfound appreciation I think and respect and understanding of America your town your country your ways you know what your life how you live it your lifestyle and so you can't not you can't go wrong you know there's no downside to travel there's no disadvantage a dent in your bank account, maybe, but a small price to yes, pay. Yes, but a huge deposit in your experience account. Oh, absolutely. An investment. Now, I know, because I've read the book, you know, uh, you know you're going to see Paris in there. You're going to see the Eiffel Tower in there. Those things, you, you, the, the things you're expecting to see, things that you traveled to, Patricia, things that you researched. What were some of your biggest surprises that you went there and went, I had absolutely no idea? Well, on a grand scale, um, a big trip for me and a very recent trip, and they say that your most recent, of course, experiences are the ones that are most vibrant still in your memory, your recall, was Iran. I don't think in my life ever anywhere at any time from my first trip to Atlantic City when I was four until today, I have never been so blown away by the reality of the experience Yes, because you go, and I thought I was very open-minded and had done my research and had talked to Persian friends. I thought I And we're not just talking about Tehran. We're talking about what is, is, uh, oh my God. And Shiraz, Tabriz, the entire country from top to bottom. And it's still there. I mean, it's not, it hasn't been destroyed by ISIS. Yes, at all. It's, it's one of the most remarkable experiences and it's the people, it's the people is the people is people so what i didn't really and, understand and the people by the way I, I mean forget all the videos that you saw about the 1979 hostage taking at the u.s embassy the people there are happy to see you they are, they, they engage oh, it's you it's more than happy yeah. you're a rock star yeah. they love westerners but they love americans if they know i mean at 50 paces they can tell that you're a western and they'll come and embrace you and invite you home for dinner and they surround you and they're, they're just exuding love and welcome but when they find out you're american the world stops and this crowd of 10 becomes a crowd of 100 and if i had a dime for every time they invited me home for dinner they're a remarkable people so the interesting thing is that when the Ayatollahs and the clerics came in 1979-80, they must have been giving away toasters or microwaves or they, they gave incentives for families to propagate and have children, children, children. These were to have been the um, armies for Islam. 
And instead, now everybody's 35 years old, highly educated. They revere education, high education universities. They um, are all online, internet, Facebook. There's oh, yeah. a way of circumventing. They're very pro-Western. It's a real problem for the government, and they've understood that they have to choose their battles, and they've become more lenient because otherwise, this—I um, think it's seventy percent of the population—is in its thirties. Yeah, it's a very young, young, very hip, or remarkably so, and um, very welcoming, very pro-Western. If you take a look at some of the countries that most Americans would, would perceive as forbidding, uh, Iran, North Korea, and a number of other ones, and you look historically at how those doors were opened in other countries. Uh, travel played a huge role, mm -hmm. right? It goes back to the ping pong team in China in 1971, right? I mean, with all due respect to Dennis Rodman in North Korea, it did open some doors. And when you take a look at, at the, the economy of North Korea, what do they produce that the world consumes in volume other than unreliable Scud missiles? The answer is nothing except travel and tourism. And I actually believe their leader knows this. And I actually believe that he's trying in his own crazy way, not with Americans, but to cut deals with the Germans, with the Swiss, to come in there and, and start to build the infrastructure that will allow for a large amount of tourism. Yeah, very interesting, very isolated, very yes. exciting for me to visit for the first time South Korea yeah. and to go to the DMZ. It was as close as I ever got. And you can kind of peer over you the... You were in Panmunjom. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, one, I, 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 there's a very funny picture I still have on my wall of me back in 1978 at the height of the tensions there uh, with me in Panmunjom. With one, with, with, I, I just kind of, they told me not to do. <laughs> I put one foot on one side, one foot the other, and you'd see a South Korean guard or a North Korean guard look at me like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. And that that said it all, you know. And I, I live to tell the tale. Yeah. But now the economy is going to take precedence. It has to. When you have a country like North Korea that can't even feed their own people, uh, they can build missiles to to kind of you know shake the the, the, the sword and rattle the, the, the sabers. But the bottom line is there will come a time in the not-too-distant future, like you're seeing in Iran, like you will see in northern Iraq and other places where they realize the only thing that can save them is the one thing that saves everybody at the same time, which is travel and tourism. Yeah, absolutely. I wish all of our politicians traveled more. I wish they had to show their passport before they signed uh, now up. You to... See, now, Patricia, you've... <laughs> we won't go there. Oh, no, I'm going to go there right now. Because how many you members... You go there, Peter. Here it comes, you ready? How many members of the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate have passports? Oh, is this a rhetorical question? I'm going to tell you the answer. It's not oh, good. No. Oh, no. Oh, well, I didn't good. think it would be good. It's not good. It's probably downright depressing. It's about 42%. Uh, well, now, actually, if you remember that's the, twice what I was expecting. Well, look, if you're a member of the House Foreign Relations Committee, you have a passport. If you're a first-time congressperson, you know, from Iowa, maybe not. And yet you're asked to vote on global policy. It drives me nuts. It should be a prerequisite. That's kind of a no-brainer, don't you think? Well, when George W. Bush became he did president, not have he did not passport. have a passport. I know. That's, that stuns me. Yeah. And his father, who was ambassador, you think for family reasons. Well, no. The first time that George W. Bush left the country was to visit his dad when he was the ambassador to oh, China. so he did then. Oh, no. He had left the country before. Oh, okay. But not for a long time prior to becoming president. Mm. So hard to believe, but you know what? Maybe not because he's in, he's representative of so many Americans. 
If only 37% of Americans have a passport. That's 63% who don't. I know. And you also wonder of that very small number just how many are in use. Yeah. You know, how many are tucked away in the sock drawer collecting dust and haven't been used in the last, you know, however many years. Expired, whatever. Well, the good news is that at least some of them are buying your book. <laughs> and some of them are reading the book. Or and they're all buying sudden, it for the USA and Canada. Well, not Canada, because now, now you, you need, need a passport, passport for to Canada. Go to Canada. But the bottom line is, at least they're getting inspiration. I hope so. Yeah. Really, that's at the end of it all. That's the reason for the book. And I often hear, but, you know, how will I ever see all thousand? And that's such a misrepresentation. Oh, don't go there. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, I hear it all the time. And I have to it's patiently explain. No, it's really just to present and to enlighten people to the possibilities, this embarrassment of possibilities, and to pick and choose those places that speak to you, that kind of jump off the page and say, oh my God, yes, sure, I didn't know it existed, or I forgot it was so wonderful. You know what? My definition of true luxury travel is when you have options. That's what your book is. Yeah, a thousand your, options. A thousand options, and every one of them, right? I feel like Ed McMahon on the alternative. Every one of them <laughs> is an opportunity to build bridges, to be that ambassador, and to have an experience that you can then come home and share those stories with your friends. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's all about. At the end of the day, just like your trip to Ireland, it's storytelling. It is. Yeah. And I was happy that we did the update for the USA and Canada book just in time this year, 2007, um, to be out there in time for the Canada celebration of their 150th. 150th. Yeah, exactly. Because I, maybe you know this better than I, just how little the you know how small the numbers are of tourists from the U.S. north to Canada. It's it, it's astoundingly low. Yeah, um, and they don't quite know. But you know why? How, you know why most Americans think of Canada as Dudley Do Right. In the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in his little red uniform and his little hat and maybe Bullwinkle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Rocky. I mean, but the point is, get a map. I, 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 there's, I have a map on my wall in my office and I make people look at it for one reason. But I make them look at it after I ask them a question. What's the largest enclosed body of water in North America? And the, Oh, the Great Lakes. No, it's Hudson Bay. Take a look at how big that is. I can't wait to go back there. Because nobody goes. Mm. You know, it's amazing. I was just talking about Hudson Bay this morning, actually, because Churchill on the banks of Hudson Bay is the polar bear capital of the world. And you've gone out there with the big track trucks. Yeah, and, oh, the tundra buggies. Yeah, the tundra buggies. And there yeah. are 900 polar bears, which by sheer chance is the same number of human inhabitants of Churchill. So it's kind <laughs> of like one mammal to one human, one homo sapien. I have, your, I have the name of your new book, 900 Bears to See Before You Die. No, I'm just kidding. Patricia. <laughs> Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, the international edition, of course, the USA and Canada edition. Coming up next, we're in San Diego, so one of the places in your book is San Diego. And joining us will be the food critic and the editor-at-large from San Diego Magazine, Troy Johnson, with a whole different look on one of those thousand places. Back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour with me, Peter Greenberg, right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg welcome aboard another edition of the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news coming to you this week from san diego california and uh, joining me now 
the, the food critic and the editor-at-large of San Diego Magazine, uh, Troy Johnson. And the reason why I asked Troy to come on the show is because for those of you who have not been to San Diego recently or who have not been to San Diego at all, there is a culinary explosion going on in Southern California. Uh, the scene has definitely moved south, and it's here. And covering it all is Troy Johnson. How are you, man? I have the treadmill and the belly fat to prove it, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when we talk about the food scene down here, I, I, I first came down to San Diego in 1971 when I was a correspondent for Newsweek. There is one sort of a very mediocre seafood restaurant called Anthony's Fish Grotto. Oh, yeah. Right on the water, and I figured I couldn't get I couldn't go wrong if I just ordered fried clams because you fry anything with enough tartar sauce, I guess you could get through it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then it was sort of like I blinked and closed my eyes, and then whoa, what happened? Yeah, it's great. Well, you talk about frying too. You can deep fry my divorce papers and I eat them. You know, but the um, the. Explosion happened about 2004, 2006. I mean, all that media that popped up, Food Network and, you know, all the gourmet magazines and, you know, and, and Food and Wine and Bon Appetit, you know, and Lucky Peach and Eater, you know, all that stuff. All this, all of a sudden, chefs went from this really unsexy career that you would never wish upon your worst children. You know, why? why? <laughs> because you didn't get paid much. The hours are so long. The physical labor, your back is going to go out by age 30 unless you're doing yoga in between services. You know, and everybody I know has just been, their bodies are just rocked by that, you know, by that industry. And then, plus, how many chefs did I know who smoked? Oh, yeah, smoked. And then when you get off, where's that bar? That bar's right there. You know, I just actually talked to a chef and he said, you know, the only chefs I've seen that survived this career were the ones that didn't go out and drink. They spent that money on knives and they went, they went, actually took care of their bodies. But I mean, it was a really unsexy career. And then all of a sudden the celebrity chef moment came out. I mean, chefs were like this, you know, they were the Mick Jaggers, you know, they were, all of a sudden they were the thing. They were these creative geniuses working with microgreens, you know, and they had their knives on and they had their chef's jackets, you know. And, and they had personalities. And they had personalities. I mean... It, if you ever been in, you've been at a ton of kitchens. That oh, is not short on personalities or weapons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, just those are the kind of guys that have you know been to jail once, twice, or seven times. You know, or you know they should have gone to jail at some points in their lives. It's a rough and tumble, male and female, but it just it takes a special certain personality to work in that fire. And it sort of intersected a, a desire on the part of the public to even even want to know about the food they were eating. Yeah. Or wanted to have experiential one-upsmanship with their friends to say, I had something you didn't. Well, and think about watching, you know, think about watching food. You know, whether you're watching on Instagram or watching a video of it on watching Food Network, when you, there's something very simian lizard brain erotica about watching food come together. You know, it is just, a, it's, it, it's powerful, you know, and, I, and everybody just resonates with it. I mean, really, it became my new MTV, you know, a Food Network did. Watching a dish come together was me watching, like, my favorite musician you know do his own video all right so you you've opened the door here using that symbolism and taking it to its logical conclusion uh -huh. what is the sexiest food you've ever seen come together mm, i'll tell you I did, well the best food that i've ever seen with presentation and taste there was a 12 course tasting up at grand del mar here in san diego there is a, it's a 400 million dollar resort with some very gaudy interior you know, um, that they have white tablecloths. I've been to that restaurant there. Addison. Yeah. Yeah. William Bradley, Thomas Keller has named him as one of his favorite young chefs in America. William Bradley cooks like, I mean, just mind blowing food. He was, but, but can I do my impression of the waiters there? <laughs> 
What do you, are you going to do cotillion? No, 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 no. I, I could. No, my, it's it's one thing when they when they when they come to the table, but when they tell you the entire life story of the dish you're about to, to and they do it breathlessly, and they do it like they're like they're whispering it like bad librarians. Oh yeah. You know, they're like, and now the steak that never had a mother. That you know, it's like, and you're. Just put the can you just put the dish on the table, please. You know, it's and this is course number two of ninety, and you're like going, get a stretcher. You know, I mean, I mean, it's a little much. I got to tell you. Well, here's I actually didn't get Addison for the first couple of times I went in there because it was a little bit too pretentious, a little bit too over the top. The way that waiters. Oh, were, and then I got the check. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Then I needed the stretcher. Yeah, then you need the stretcher yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But the um. That he cooks to 98 degrees, the perfect temperature of your mouth. And none of his food is hot. It's all just perfectly edible at that moment. And people time. don't think about that. But people don't. You know, and the amount of mastery that he has. About the third time I went there, I was like, oh, God, this pretentious place again. And I finally was at 12 course days, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the best food I've ever had in my entire life. And yet you used a word that I try not to use, mm-hmm. a word that ends in S-T. You mm-hmm. said the best. Mm-hmm. Is it truly the best? Yeah, it is. I, I, and I have, I've been to True in, in, in Chicago. Oh, I've, that's Rick Tremonto. Yeah. I've been, I've been to a lot of... You know, well, you been, know what I loved about True? The caviar stairs. Oh, yeah. Come on. Oh, God, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah it's kind of hard not to love that. I mean... yeah. If you don't know what's happening, it's pretty. It's probably better that you don't. Mm-hmm. And you just all do. I'll have that. And next thing you know, there's this gl- green glass that comes to your table, and it's a, it's a glass stairs. It's just mm-hmm. it's a, maybe twelve or six steps, mm-hmm. and on each one is a different kind of caviar. Yeah, the hello, sta- the stairway to heaven, as Led Zeppelin put it, or the stairway yeah. to ATM machine. Is there, yeah. But the but the point is stairway to insolvency. Yeah, but I had to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I had to do it. Well, that's, I spent $400 at True. I spent $400. I swore to myself I'd never do that again in my entire life. I luckily work at a, in, a, in a career where a magazine and, and, and TV kind of help pay for my appetite, you know? Right. So I'm very, very lucky to be able to do this. But I mean, yeah, and Addison Del Mar was, it was absolutely the best food I've ever had. Okay, so now let's get down to what's really changed the situation other than just this explosion of celebrity chefs, mm-hmm. because that's national. That wasn't just San Diego. Yeah. That was national, right? You know, you had Emerald and you had all these guys who were just, you know, screaming off the TV screen, yeah. I mean, right? And Or, you know, Gordon Ramsay, who really was screaming off the TV screen. Oh, yeah. And then everybody who was on a TV show became a celebrity chef, mm-hmm. and the prices were accordingly, mm-hmm. right? But there was something else that happened, and I don't know if you noticed it, I did a piece on this for CBS a couple of years ago. We're about to do it again because it's even gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the the dark science of menu engineering. Uh huh. And what I mean by that is they've done all the psychographic surveys. There, there are consultants out there oh, yeah. who will tell the chefs exactly where to place an item on their menu in, so that it will guarantee them that they will serve more of them and get a higher profit margin. Or how to write the actual price so that they'll sell more of it so people won't really register how much they're paying for it. Write it out in letters. Write it out in letters with no decimal points. That's like if you go to Vegas, you're not playing with money, you're playing with chips. This is not money, this is just chips. Exactly. (laughs) And the thing that I learned that was the most enlightening thing for me, I said, oh, really, is the upper right-hand corner. If you Uh open up a menu, it's a a two-sided menu, your eyes normally will, they, they look at the gazing patterns of your eyes. Yeah. And they'll notice that you'll always look to the upper right-hand corner. And then I said, oh, so that you put your 
the one you're going to sell the most there? And they go, no. Here's what we learned. We put our most expensive item there that we have no intention yeah. of selling there, and then the item we want to sell right below it. So they know your eyes will hit that, mm-hmm. and then you go, oh, no, not that. I'll take that. Absolutely. It's like, I, I, I'm going right there. Oh, how much? Okay, wait, wait. Oh, in comparison, this is a deal and a steal. This right. one right below it. You know, I, I did it. And then where do they put the grilled cheese and the chicken fingers? The back page on the lower corner, you know, when they dump it for the kids. You <laughs> exactly. Know. Yeah. Well, you know, I did a study about in restaurant psychology, you know, and one of the most fascinating things to me, like the color schemes that they, that they do too. CPK, California Pizza Kitchen, was designed. Um, That's black and yellow. Black and yellow and white. It agitates the diner. Intentionally agitates the Makes diner. Makes them eat faster. Makes them eat faster. They turn the tables over. Volume goes up like that. Well, there are algorithms now at the restaurants yeah. to be able to turn the tables. Yeah. Right? And you notice almost every fast food um, is... Almost every fast food is yellow and red. Again, agitating colors because they want you in and out. They want, do not want you to sit there and you know, get on your Wi-Fi and write your novel. You know, they want to get you in and out. And yet Starbucks, the lighting is a little bit more subdued. Because they wanted to create a third space. They wanted you to live there all, there all day and buy a scone and then buy a coffee. And then, you know, they wanted to create a living room. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and the other algorithm is music. Mm-hmm. Because the louder the music, the faster you eat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you give me some Inya or some kind of like whale song, and I'll hang out in your restaurant for four and a half hours. <laughs> you know? Don't play me whale song. You will never get rid of me. Unreal. <laughs> I'll, I'll remember that. But you'd think that you know, in this world of menu engineering, mm-hmm. which it deals you know, with human psychology, that people would like get hip to it. They don't. No, I know. They don't. And the menus that are written out, and by the way, the use of the, of the number nine the number nine is interesting. At lower price point restaurants uh-huh. like Denny's, uh-huh. right, or Coco's or Chili's, uh-huh. they use nine a lot. Yeah, sure, five ninety nine. Five ninety nine, right? Yeah. At the higher priced restaurants, they don't. They just write it out thirty, twenty, uh-huh. forty, in very subtle type fonts. You know, it, it's interesting. A cursive type font. Yeah, I, I, cursive is. I don't even know why we teach that anymore. Uh, but I mean, cursive. I've seen it on menus. You know, you almost can't read it. You know, it just looks like a piece of art. So therefore, you're not associating that with money that's going to come out of your pocket. You know, or coming out of your paycheck. You're like, sure, I'll take that thirty. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And then, of course, uh, this hotels are, by the way, guilty of this all the time. It's double dipping. It happens in Europe more often than it happens in this country, mm-hmm. where you get your bill, the service is already included, and then they keep an additional space on the check for tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're double room service hotels notorious for that. What we're doing, what we're seeing right now, is the proliferation of of uh, service charge. Three to four percent service charge because in California their minimum wage is going up to fifteen dollars. And this is a huge thing for California, to be quite honest with you. I mean, the people that are going to be able to afford the fifteen dollar minimum wage, everybody wants somebody to earn a minimum wage, right? But you think about these restaurants; so they have servers that are making thirty dollars an hour, forty dollars an hour. Now this small restaurateur has to pay that person five dollars an hour instead of paying the guy in the dishwashing pit, you know, a, a, a living wage. So what we're seeing is that three to four percent. Um, service charge to help them offset that cost. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about three things. Tipping or no tipping, Mm -hmm. like what Danny Meyer's trying to do, right? Something I call the terrible twos, and I'll get to that in a second. And then the concept of what a real restaurant reservation means, what it implies, 
And what is it in terms of, is it really a contract? Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here with Troy Johnson from San Diego Magazine right after this. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We're talking with Troy Johnson, the uh, the food critic and the editor-at-large for San Diego Magazine, about all things food, restaurants, menus, engineering, and what you really don't know that your restaurant doesn't always tell you. Uh, One of the things that, that I get so angry about, in the definition of the word hospitality, if you're coming to my restaurant and you're making a reservation and your table is not ready, Mm-hmm. What do they always tell you? Oh, why don't you go to the bar and buy drinks on you? <laughs> right? Which you, which you had no intention of doing anyway. And then to add insult to injury, when your table is ready, they make you settle at the bar. Don't just put it on my table. No, you must settle here. Exactly. Where am I going? I'm just going into that room over there. Right? Because the bartender needs to get taken care of. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is everybody's going to get taken care of. Just stop that. But then, Troy, it gets worse because... To me, and look, to me, a restaurant reservation is an implied contract, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, it works both sides. Right. If I show up at 8 o'clock for an 8 o'clock reservation, and I'm the operator of the restaurant, I'm the owner, I'm the host, you're yeah. the guest, and that table isn't ready, why wouldn't I say to you, I'm so sorry, the other table hasn't left yet, please go into the bar, drinks are on me. Yeah. Because I'll come back to that restaurant every single time because I took care of you. Well, and especially because alcohol is really cheap. I mean, that is where they make their money. I mean, restaurants do not make any money on food. You know, you're talking about, you know, profit margin of food is, you know, they're selling a $28 steak for $30. You know, you're not making your money there. You're making it at the bar because a cocktail is literally about 15 cents and you sell it for $8. I mean, really, I've talked to a few restaurants. So the markup is just huge. Markup is huge. which means, and that if I didn't, if I didn't have your table ready, or you know, I mean, I, you know, um, you know, somebody's just lingering at your table, and I, yeah, I don't have it ready for you. Just give me a couple of drinks, absolutely. Right. And by the way, that works. Conversely, conversely, if I'm coming to the restaurant for an eight o'clock reservation, but I show up at eight thirty. I should have to pay a penalty for that. Yeah. And I believe that's the way it should be. I agree with so, that too. For example, so if I call up your restaurant and make a reservation for eight o'clock, I would have no problem with you saying to me, can you please give us your credit card to secure the table? Yep. And please be aware of the fact that if you're not there within 15 minutes, there'll be a service charge attached because we don't want to delay our other customers. Exactly. Our other guests. I once, okay? I once knew a woman who had a, um, a, 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 an amorous relationship with the restaurateur, and it didn't work so, work out so well. So what she decided to do as revenge was she made a reservation for a ten top and did not show up. <laughs> and that kills. No, no, no. You don't just do that once. You do that every <laughs> night, man. You get back big time. <laughs> so I mean, that's. But it really kills a restaurant, and people don't realize this. And I really do think that you should. It should have, work both ways. Absolutely, you should have to put down a deposit. If you don't show up, that really throws the restaurant off and hits their bottom line. They they didn't reserve that table because you said you were coming for the night. Now they've got to rely on a walk-in. And I believe in that. But now I'll go one step further and tell you my biggest argument 
about the tyranny of restaurants. Mm-hmm. I call it the terrible twos. If I want to go to a lovely restaurant and have a wonderful evening yeah. um, with a significant other or just a friend, it doesn't matter. I don't want to have to rub elbows with somebody 16 inches away from me oh. at another terrible two, right? And so this is my, my, my worst kept secret. I always make a reservation for three because they then have to put me at a table for four. And at least I have enough space to just think, eat, converse. And I'm willing to pay a premium for that. I don't know if I just gained respect for you or lost it. I really appreciate that. That's a really great tip, and I'm going to steal it. I'm going to use well, that. Well, I always do yeah. it. And the thing is, if somebody would say to me, oh, sir, if, if you're really coming for, you know, for two people and yeah. you want a table for four, we're going to give you a 20% surcharge, I'd say okay. Sure. Just so yeah. I wouldn't have to like sit there with people I don't know listening to my conversation and vice versa. Oh, yeah. Well, and especially with the way that rents have, rents have gone. I mean, what you're talking about is New York. I mean, New York is a completely different you know, dining. And the square footage that you're given in those terrible twos, I don't even know how they can put the plate on the table. Oh, yeah. I, usually, I, I dine at a restaurant in Laguna Niguel um, called Taboo. The really good, good restaurant, known to be one of the best restaurants in Laguna Niguel, which is the artsy um, Porsche Mercedes um, community right here in Southern California. And by the way, every summer they do the pageant of the masters. The pageant of the masters. And, and of course, all the women who pose as the Rubens characters. Well, we can't talk about that. Go ahead. <laughs> so, and I, the men too, by the way. Exactly. So I went in there in this place. They literally had to move tables. If you wanted to get out of your your, um, your your seat, they had to move your table out because there was no room to actually go next to I you. actually think that's a violation of the fire code. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, so for me, the the uh, that, that just drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. But I understand that the restaurant needs to make money, and that's why they're in business, and I'm willing to pay a surcharge for that as long as I get some space. Now, there's the other end of that spectrum, which is what people really pay for. Let's say at Alain Ducasse's restaurant at the Hotel de Paris in Monaco, where the nearest table to you is in another zip code. I mean, <laughs> literally, right. yeah. you walk into the restaurant, and there might, it's a restaurant that's the size of any other restaurant, yep. and there are only 10 tables mm-hmm. in the whole restaurant. And you could never eavesdrop on another conversation, even if you had that you know, predilection. It, 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 no, it's not there. Absolutely. Now, you're paying you know, $1,500 for dinner, but oh my God, did you have a private conversation? Yeah, you're getting your own real estate. Yeah. If yeah. Yeah. If you're doing some insider trading, that's a really nice place. And by the way, be. that's Monaco for you. But <laughs> okay, so now my next item up for bids here on The Price is Right is, is, is what Danny Meyer is doing now in New York mm-hmm. and some other restaurants are, are, are doing it as well, where they've essentially eliminated tipping. Yeah. Um, and I'm not so sure, I don't know the answer by the way, but I'm not mm-hmm. so sure America's ready for that Yeah. because in other cultures, tipping is, is not even part of the culture and they've done okay until yeah. we showed up and started tipping mm-hmm. in our culture. Everybody expects a 20% tip. Yeah. I mean, literally a 20% tip at some restaurants. Now they actually calculate it for you on your receipt. Oh, most restaurants had now. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, why were, why, why were we letting people do math? You know, let's do it for them. Here it is. Here's what you owe me. And there's the implied is that you owe me this. It's not, you know, it's it, not it, to reward you for great service. It's absolutely. you already owe it to me. Yeah. 
And now Danny Meyer says, well, this is not a fair and equitable way because the guys in the kitchen aren't getting paid, you know, right? Exactly. And so let's eliminate tips, build it into the check and let everybody benefit from it. Is that working? I think that is the progressive model that needs to happen in the restaurant industry because right now there's a shortage of cooks. There's a shortage. Nobody can find cooks anymore. It, it, was, it's, it was national news in the New York Times. It's happening here. I've talked to restaurant, restaurateurs here in San Diego. They're like, we can't find cooks. Nobody wants to work for 12 bucks an hour while the guy up front in the serving area is making $37 an hour. There's a massive economic disparity. And don't tell me that if you're drinking at the bar afterwards, there's a little bit of resentment when the, you know, the server isn't buying all of the drinks because they just made three to four times what the guy's working his butt off in the kitchen, you know, cutting himself and everything else. All right. So then I got to go back to the question, Troy, is it working? It, It needs to work on basically what it needs is it needs a rally. It needs everybody to go in on the Danny Meyer scale. Everybody needs to go in and say, this is what we're doing. We're going to charge 18% um, you know, charge and no tipping at all. And we're going to distribute it equally among the house so everybody has a living wage. Yeah, because somebody said to me the other day is, you know, there's tremendous wealth. But it just hasn't been distributed evenly. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, when that's you think about that, I mean, it, 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 distribution is a problem in America. Period. Because you know, we wasted forty percent of our food that was grown in America last year. You know, and they, they say in third world countries, you know, they waste, you know, um, I think forty to sixty. You know, and that's it. All of that. But, but in third world countries, they waste forty to sixty because they don't have the technology and they don't have the infrastructure to make that work. Distribution, exactly. Yeah. You know, what I mean, so it basically comes down to yeah, di- distributing wealth in the restaurant industry needs to come at an 18% service charge. But you need more Danny Myers to hop on board. Everybody needs to get behind him and say, sorry, this is how it works. Exactly. And if you don't, then everybody's going to be like, you know, forget you, Danny Meyer. I'm going to go to this place where I don't have to pay 18% out the gates. But if everybody bands together and does it and says, look, this is standard operating procedure. Otherwise, we're going to go out. Right. Then that'll work. We're talking with Troy Johnson, the food critic and the uh, editor-at-large of San Diego Magazine. I have to ask the obvious question now, because you heard me tell you what, what angers me about some of the things, that the, the rituals or mm-hmm. the procedures at Russia. What angers you? The automatic smile and an upsell. You know, I, I just don't upsell me. I can see it. I can see it coming from a mile away. You know, okay, give me an example. Where you go, all right, hey, what's good, good on the menu? Well, I like these three things that are the most priciest things. on. Like, but if you're not into that, then they give you one. I mean, just... I think that you should have an honest conversation as a server. Go, hey, what, what price are you going for? What are you looking for? You want, you want 10, 20, 30? What? You know? All right, I'm going to give you one. But nobody, each. that's the elephant in the room. Nobody ever talks about Nobody that. wants to talk about that. That's not going to embarrass me. I don't care. I'm, everybody knows I'm cheap. You know, I'll be, like, I'll be like, this is no, this is no, you know, surprise to you, date. I'm very cheap. $12 menu, please. Yeah. No, but hold on a second. Now you've opened another door here. Stop. You are not going to do that on a date. No, you're not. Okay. Maybe not on a no, date. No, you're not. Because that's in and out right there. Done. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's because usually I take my dates to in and out. You know what the biggest complaint women tell me about first dates? Hmm. It's when the guy, when the tab comes, the guy says, let's split it. Oh, God. Yo, oh, wow. Guys, how stupid are you? <laughs> well, the, usually the biggest complaint I get is that they're on the date with me. But, you know, it's just... Well, that's it, another story and a, <laughs> and, and, and a topic for an entirely different show. But, but seriously, there's a protocol here. Yeah. If you ask someone out on a date... And by the way, women could ask me out on a date, but I'm still going to pick up the tab. But, yeah. but the thing is, if you ask somebody out on a date and you go to a place, right, mm-hmm. and you order... 
you pay. It's not like who had the tuna fish, who had the cottage cheese. Yeah, and, this is, and that's not some quaint 1950s etiquette for gentlemen. That's just basic standard operating procedures, human being. Although, you, although there is one thing that really gets me mad. Huh. The restaurants that when you go to a dinner with a, with a woman, uh-huh. they give you the menu with the prices and they give her the menu without them. Oh, yeah. Oh, built-in sexism. No, you know, built-in ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. Come on. Because <laughs> I know I'm paying. She's like, well, I don't know, but I've heard about I this, heard about this foie gras this and foie the caviar. Exactly. And, 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 and uh, could we have like six black truffles? Yeah. You know, so. This Louis Trey reduction sauce on this <laughs> sounds amazing. Louis the 13th reduction. That's perfect. Yes. I know. Okay. So now that we've addressed all the things that we don't like, before we run out of time, tell me what you do like. Uh, you know what I love about the restaurant scene now, and we're seeing this a lot in San Diego, is the the unstuffication. Unstuffic- you know, the stuffiness is is gone. They're taking out the you know white tablecloths. They're taking out you know the the pretentiousness of dining. And you're having really good chefs and really minimal Spartan, even like kind of decrepit you know um, restaurants. You know, so they're able to pass on some of that food cost to you. They're able to give you pork belly at ten dollars because they're not paying you know this ass astronomical rent and they didn't spend so much in design and everything else they went down to a garage sale hung up a couple freaky paintings a velvis painting of elvis you know and they can they can serve you good food at a reasonable price you know the good example of that is the burger joint at the parker meridian in new york okay yeah this is uh, my good friend stephen pipes who runs the hotel had this space he went to home depot got some plywood got some formica right Mm -hmm. just built this place didn't even put a sign up Yep. Just people started talking about these great burgers, and you go to that hotel, which is which is a very expensive hotel in New York on 57th Street. There's a line out the door every day to a place that just has a brown curtain outside yep. and not even a sign, because they're actually just going for the food. Because I don't need a lot of that stuff. I don't need the the, the frippery. I don't need the pretension. You know, I mean, I, I don't need to be treated like somebody in a Jane Eyre novel. You know, I, I would rather just go in my blue jeans with some you know concrete you know floors and you know some good music on there and a reclaimed wood bar. That's it. And you serve me really good food. Like one of the San Diego restaurants is Carnita Snack Shack. He literally was a four star chef. Opened up a tiny. He opened up a tiny little window. He basically is this. 300-pound man, God bless him. I love Hannes Calvin to death. He's a big gentleman, you know, and he was cooking <laughs> pork belly in this tiny little kitchen about the size of, you know, a, a one-bedroom experience. Like flat, sweet, it was tiny, but he could pass all that savings on to his customers. So you're getting this four-star food on like a paper plate, you know, and it's beautiful pork belly. Well, Troy Johnson from San Diego Magazine, thank you for a four-star interview. All right, absolutely. How bro. about that for sucking up to you? <laughs> Anytime. That concludes the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Once again, I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. See you guys soon. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.